0: Hi there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people. And today my guest is an author, J.D. Doyle. His book is called 1981, My Gay American Road Trip, A Slice of Our Pre-AIDS Culture. Now, J.D. is somebody I've known for over 20 years. I first met him probably around... 2000, when I had a CD of music out called The Water's Fine and I was at this Out Music Awards event in New York. And JD at the time was doing a radio show called Queer Music Heritage where he really interviewed and spotlighted queer artists, music artists. And he did it for years and he has this huge archive. He's just a huge champion of queer independent artists. And he introduced himself to me, talked specifically about my music, which meant so much to me, and... We've stayed in touch ever since I stayed there when I was on a book tour in Houston. And uh, now he's written this book, which is based on a diary he kept of a road trip he did in 1981. He was in his 30s. He had just gotten laid off from a job. He had a little money in his pocket. And he hit all of these different uh, cities in the United States. He hadn't been out. He'd been out a few years, but it was really sort of like a gay awakening. And it was right before AIDS came and changed everything. So it's such a slice of history. It's such a moment in time, riding in this car with him uh, in this book. And so I was so excited to talk to him about it. But before we get to that, I want to remind you that this podcast, Dennis Anyone, is brought to you by Radio Shack. No, it's not. It's not brought to you by anybody. Um, uh, first of all, does Radio Shack still exist? I mean, where do people get chords now if it doesn't? Anyway, uh, it's brought to you by me. Uh, I do it, but there are two ways you can support it if you want. Uh, You can go to DennisAnyone.net, and there is a uh, donate button there that you can uh, kick in a little money to my virtual tip jar, help me cover my expenses. That's always nice. Or you could become a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows under the DNR banner. That's Derek and Romaine, for those of you who love their uh, radio show. And for a monthly fee, you get my show early, and you get all these other great shows. So check that out at dnrstudios.com. And here now is the interview with J.D. Doyle. Joining me now from Houston, Texas, it's J.D. Doyle. He's the author of 1981, My Gay American Road Trip, A Slice of Pre-AIDS Culture. Hi, J.D. How are you doing, Dennis? it to, long to time. see you. I know. I, I, I met you around the year 2000. And um, I was thinking of when I first met you. I think it was at the Out Music Awards in New York. Does that sound right?
1: Yes, and you also came to Houston on a book tour.
0: I did, and you were nice enough to put me up um, on my book tour, and we hung out and we went to the reading. I think maybe three people showed up. I Um, think
1: it was five.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? It was super fun, and I remember – being at that Out Music Award event in New York, I had a CD of music that I had put out and you were somebody that came up to me and like knew, the, knew some of the songs and like, like it meant so much to me that you cared so much about music. And I was just having lunch with Tom Goss this week and I told him I was interviewing you and he just talked about how much he loves you and you're a collection of stuff. He goes, did you see the collection? And I was like, I've heard about the collection. Uh, because you also are a historian, especially around LGBTQ music. Um, but it just meant so much to me personally that you cared about my music and like new lyrics and certain songs. And I think all queer artists. Um, so I just wanted to say that right up front, that Thank it you. meant a lot Thank to you.
1: me. Well, your album is was an outstanding piece of work.
0: Oh. Thank you. <laughs> I could cry thinking about it because it was kind of a different thing than I normally do. And it was an exciting time, though. And it was exciting to be in New York. And you also did a radio show called Queer Music Heritage that you had me on, I remember. Um, so mm-hmm. what you've done for queer artists, uh, especially music people, is is amazing. And um, thank you.
1: It was a passion.
0: When did you fall in love with music?
1: Ooh, high school. Yeah. And I started buying records. like yeah. in This this was, the, to date myself, this was the early 60s. Right. And uh, sometimes I ask people, what was your favorite year of music? Yeah. And for many people, it's when they were in high school, because they were paid a lot of attention to music
0: then. Right. So I
1: picked 63. Yay, Ronettes, you know.
0: Right on. Um, in your book, there's one part where you mention that you have a jukebox. And I just recently got a 50-year-old jukebox uh, restored that I've had in my garage for 30 years, not working, and now it's working, and I'm obsessed with it, and my listeners on my podcast are like, he's talking about his jukebox again. But did you have a (laughs) jukebox? Did you have one? I did.
1: I had one when I lived in Norfolk. Uh, It was a a 54 Wurlitzer. It was gorgeous. It played 45s upright. uh, I I can't show you visually, but it it held them on on its side and played them that way, which was
0: interesting. Oh, it was so cool. It's so cool to have a jukebox. I love it so much. But even when you were on your road trip, you were like, I I, I like 45s for my jukebox. I was like, I got to find out about that jukebox. Um, Before we move on to the book, I want to ask you something else about music. In 2019, you got word from the Library of Congress about your collection. Is that right?
1: Correct. Um, They asked for permission to, uh, what do they call it? They collect snapshots of people's websites, and they wanted to start doing mine. And not just the music site, but the history site and the obituary site. So, of course, I said, yes, yes, of course. This was huge, because I didn't know they were even thinking about it.
0: So, do you have to do anything, or do they just do it on their own? Are they going to pay your web hosting fees, I guess, is the question? No,
1: no. (laughs) I I have a a 401k. Thank
0: you. (laughs) All right, good. So, but that means it's going to really be preserved through the Library of Congress, which I think is so important and well, so of course, deserved. I artists understand
1: that because yeah. many of the artists I played, hundreds of the artists that I played, never got played on the radio. Right. So just knowing that 100 years from now, there's my music.
0: So let's move on to your book. It's a, a diary that you kept during a road trip that you took in 1981. So mm-hmm. explain to but, the listeners what. What came before that? What gave you this opportunity to take the trip? Sure. Um, In
1: 1981, I was living in Norfolk, Virginia. I was out of the closet for three years, so I was already experiencing gay life. I was very involved in the gay community there, which was a wonderful community. I made lots of friends right away, started working on the gay newspaper, uh, worked my way up to editor. I wasn't aiming for editor, it just kind of fell on my lap. So like, will you do this? Okay. So I became editor and that was very gratifying. And I, I learned a lot, great experience. And after I, I left that slot, I left because of burnout, frankly, in a voluntary group, People let you do all the work. Right, we were <laughs>
0: you were doing everything. You were delivering yeah. it. You were you doing did. the typesetting. You're writing it. Yeah, it was enough.
1: Yes, yes, I everything, get it.
0: everything. Yeah,
1: and I just no, I can't do this anymore. All right. I have to stop. Yeah. So uh, while I was stopped, um, I was laid off from my job. So I had two things you very seldom have in life: time and money.
0: Right. And you had been working as a chemical engineer at Kodak. Is that right?
1: Kodak was in a different state. This was in in Norfolk, Virginia Chemicals. They laid off about a third of the employees and me. And uh, so I sold my townhouse, moved in with some friends, had time and money. And actually, my dad suggested you should go on a road trip. And all right. And you should keep a journal. And which really surprised me thinking back. I never saw him read a book. Right, and like okay, and so that really were two nice pieces of motivation that was were great, and I never kept a journal before that, and I didn't do it after the trip either. So I, like, uh, I started the journal, and it was just for me. It was just I, I started Hello Journal, and my, my deepest thoughts, what I was running into. I was by myself, uh, introverted. Uh, I wanted to see gay America. I had, because of my newspaper contacts, uh, I could go to different cities and say, hey, I work for the Our Own Community Press in Norfolk. I'd like to see your offices. And everybody welcomed me in, and that gave me a chance to find out what was going on in their communities, what to see, what not to see, uh, what not to bother with. Uh, Oh, there's a great national park few people know about You should check that out. Or there's a play Friday night. You might be able to get tickets. I did. So things like that. I was networked pretty easily across the country. And I was writing it all down. And then I got to Houston and, uh, surprise, I fell in love.
0: Yes, you did. With Clark.
1: With Clark. And, uh, in fact, uh, that chapter of the book in the table contest has a a subtitle and there's a love story. Yeah. So that's when I met him and I I went into all that and we got pretty heavy and I go into the angst, the self-angst that I experienced about that relationship, he was not quite as ready as I was. Right. And and that's okay. And so I was writing it all down. That's where I was getting my frustrations out cuz this was not for anybody else to read. This was just what I was going through. So some of it might be a little too much, but it was real. And I did not edit really anything in the book because I felt you shouldn't censor history. Yeah. I, I put the book away for, for a couple decades yeah. at least. And around 2016, 17, I started thinking, well, now I'm a historian. I have websites, all that jazz, and I have this journal. I should do something with this. This may have some history of value that needs to be it's already captured, but it needs to be out there. It needs to be available. So I started working on the book idea. It was the journal was handwritten in ink on a grid pad, 125 pages, you know, single-spaced, like, right through it. it. It needed transcribe. I got a millennial, millennial friend to do that for me. Millennial friends are that.
0: awesome at transcribing. They're, I have
1: a number of them. They're great.
0: <laughs> we, Yeah, everyone should have a good millennial friend or two for things like that. Um, yes. Yeah. So what struck you when you read it again? What, what, what were the things that jumped out to you about what you were experiencing and how it was written? I was... Kind of surprised how promiscuous I was. Yeah, you kept track, but it was delightful. (laughs) It was charming. It was sexy. It was, and you weren't super explicit in your descriptions, Uh but you would say this one, you know, so-and-so was great. Who did I write down? Um, Norman C., best sex ever in Houston. Up until that point, maybe, you know, on the West Coast, something else could have happened, but it, it was exciting because this was before AIDS, and so as a reader, you're it's like watching Jaws and knowing the sharks under there, but the people don't mm-hmm. know it, um, which is so uh, harrowing. But also, like the the innocence of the the way people interacted with each other and the way well, people and, and uh, connected and went home with each other and the, how yes. it was spoken about. It was it was so oh, it's such a window into a time that I never really got to experience because I came of age a little bit it later. Was very
1: matter of fact. Yeah. And and I guess. Sounds vain to say it, but I looked pretty good, and I was the new kid in town, so people noticed me. Yeah, so it was pretty easy. Yeah,
0: and I love the language you talk about clones, which were the type of guys at the time, and they all kind of were clones to me. How would you describe a clone?
1: Uh, short hair, yep. mustache. Yep,
0: you Sweet. gotta have a mustache, and so easy very body. sort of yeah, and sort of hetero, masculine leaning, tank tops, jeans, rugged. Mm-hmm. my quintessential um, clone was a a porn actor named Dick Fisk who was in some of those early movies. I was like, that Uh, is the ultimate clone, but Mm -hmm. clones are hot and you you like taking pictures of clones. Um, Did you consider yourself a clone? Yes. Yeah. You had the stash. You had it going on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very sexy aesthetic. I still, when I see images from that time, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, I had the, lunch with two friends yesterday they're they're a, a couple married couple and one of them is almost finished with the book and and he he asked what's a clone yeah <laughs> it didn't dawn on me that a different generation would not even know the word yeah or, or know quite what it meant
0: I also love you, you called your hookups tricks, which we don't use as much anymore. People know what it is, obviously. There's been the movie trick and stuff, Mm -hmm. but now it's more like a hookup or whatever. But yeah, you tricked with them or you tricked. It was, Mm -hmm. and and also something I never knew was a thing. The Levi's button, I did not know that was a thing. What is that?
1: Yes, it definitely was. What was it? It definitely
0: was. And I talked about it two or three times. Yeah. Because I was noticing it in different cities. So what would you do? Was it the, which button was it and what did it mean?
1: The bottom button would be unbuttoned.
0: And that meant you were, uh, ETF. Yeah. Wow.
1: ETF.
0: Down to fuck. Um, (laughs) yeah, that's what the kids are saying. That's what my millennial friend said right before they did some computer work for me. Um, no, I love it. So the bottom button, you would leave it unbuttoned and that sent the signal.
1: And this was, I guess, national at least. Was, and I, I saw it in – and I talked to about it with people in different cities.
0: Yeah. Well, I loved reading about Los Angeles because it was fun to th- think about the places you went to. And I'm like, that place is still there. That place is not there. Oh, you know, and remembering the French market, you go there for lunch a lot, which mm-hmm. is sadly no longer there, but lasted quite a while. It was like yes. – and um, you would sit on the patio and watch the clones go by. Um, it was really like stepping back in time. So – You recorded an audio excerpt recently of you're you're doing an audio of your book, and we're going to play a little excerpt right now of your LA uh, adventure.
1: 1981, my gay American road trip, chapter eleven, Los Angeles, Monday, May 25th, 1981. It took two hours to drive to LA. The sky was very hazy, smog, I guess. I had a couple of hours until I was supposed to check into my hotel. So I drove around a little in Hollywood and took a few photos in Griffith Park. I took some of that hill that has the big Hollywood letters, but it was so hazy I doubt they'll come out well. The hotel I'll be at for the next week is the Coral Sands on Northwestern Avenue in Hollywood. Yes, a gay hotel, advertised in The Advocate. I got a weekly rate of about $23 per night, which seems good. The location is great since most of the bars I've heard about are in Hollywood or West Hollywood. The neighborhood is a bit tacky, okay, a lot tacky, but the hotel is really very nice. The rooms are fine and the hotel has two connecting wings, two stories that face each other over a long courtyard with pool, jacuzzi, deck chairs, and workout equipment. And it's very cruisy and totally self-contained. You would think it was a club bath People walk up and down the walkways, cruising, and doors are left open. I was beginning to think that there were no gay hotels that really were cruising. None of the ones I stayed at up to now have been. Thursday, May 28, 1981 Okay, I've been in L.A. for three days now, and this is my first chance to write. Disneyland is not in Anaheim. It's along Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood. Also known as the Great Gay Way, or Boys Town, Let's back up a little to Tuesday afternoon. Along Santa Monica, for about eight blocks around the motherload and Studio One, are, besides several other bars, at least a dozen very trendy shops, and I hit them all. Clothing, gift cards, books, etc. I also hit my Visa card pretty hard. One of the stores was called Pleasure Chest. Once it was known as mainly a leather shop, and now it has everything. Clothing, t-shirts, cards, leather, head shop, etc., a guy I met, Michael, used to work there and says the store get lots of celebrities. Dick Van Dyke bought a $300 sling. Tony Curtis bought a gross of poppers. And Cher bought a vibrator. I have no idea if any of that is true or just folklore. International Mail, famous for their sexy mail catalogs, has a branch there. And other clothing stores, there are many are Sports Locker and the PX, and my soon-to-be-favorite All-American Boy. All American Boy has one of the best selections of t-shirts I've ever seen, with printed sayings such as, this face seats five, mustache rides five cents, immediate seating available, not a well woman, free samples, last night in town, more than a woman, but what I really want to do is direct, see me, touch me, feel me, sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. Drama Queen. Cheap and easy. Debutantes for Human Rights. So many men. So many times. Surrender Dorothy. It's not easy being easy. Etc. And yes, I obviously took notes. At All American Boy, besides buying two shirts, I met Michael McKay, a really cute clone. I repeat, really cute. We spent most of that day and the next day together. He didn't get off work until 7 p.m., so in the meantime, I went to several bars. One was called Motherload, and it was similar to Park Place, San Diego, except without the plants. It was very nice, popular in the late afternoon for the business crowd and also later. It's the first time I've seen a live daytime DJ. Michael says it's an S&M bar, stand-in model. It seems okay to me. Then to the Four Star Saloon, a Western Bar restaurant for lunch and then to the Blue Parrot, which has kind of a tropical motif. I met Michael around 7 at the Newtown Saloon. They were giving western dance lessons, which was really neat to watch. From there we went to three cruise bars, the Spike, the Eagle, and the Rusty Nail. All were good, but I liked the nail the best. It seemed to have a friendlier crowd. Of course, it didn't hurt that Michael seems to know everybody. The DJ is a friend of his, and Michael had him play the Boys Town Gang song, Remember Me, Ain't No Mountain. Had a really good time. The next morning, we had brunch at a very nice restaurant, the French Marketplace, which has a patio overlooking the Parade of Gay Life on Santa Monica Boulevard. Very enjoyable. It's a mandatory gay tourist stop. We went to a couple reference stores and shops in the afternoon, and to a park with a neat Frank Lloyd Wright building called Hollyhock House. We took a number of photos there. We also stopped at the L.A. Gay Community Services Center, which seemed quite nice and well-organized. After dinner, Michael and I and two friends, Billy and Dave, went to the Motherlode, Rusty Nail, and then to Greg's Blue Dot. Greg's on Wednesday nights has a rock and roll revival, all early to mid-60s, very neat, and drew a packed crowd, both inside and on the patio. The patio even had a campfire, and the place had about the hottest crowd I've seen in L.A., they usually have a surprise guest every week, like the Sherells or Martha Reeves. But not this Wednesday, however, drat, because they had one over the holiday weekend.
0: One of the things that I got from reading your book is there's a carefreeness to it. Like, oh, we went shopping and then... Um, and we went to a movie, and I saw this, and I bought some records, you didn't seem to be worried about what was coming next in your life. Because for me, I kind of drift from gig to gig, and there's always this sense of, gosh, I hope something's on the other end of that. But this didn't have that, even though you were unemployed. Did you feel like you would land somewhere and you were going to be okay at the end of this?
1: Uh, remember, I'd, I was unemployed, but I sold my townhouse. Right, right. So, like, the time and money thing was definitely in play. I wasn't really worried about it. Right. Uh, I think I I mentioned once in the book, okay, I've been unemployed for one year. A second anniversary would not be a good idea.
0: Yeah, so it's a little bit, but not really. The feeling of it was, like, I'm having this experience, and it's great. And it ended up being four and a half months, but you go to so many different places. You go to 180 gay bars – um, how many States did you go to? 24 20. States? Yeah. Uh, amazing. And you, t- I love the gay bar names because they were of that era when gay bars had names that were a little, um, secret or shamey, like incognitos or alibis or like there was always or a, a little sexual mother load. Like, yeah. Um, I love the gay bar names, and I loved seeing the ads for the different gay bars that you had. How did you find the ads?
1: I'm a historian.
0: Right. Uh, So so
1: I know where to look. Uh, The ads were very important to me because I wanted to show what was going on. And what better can evoke that period in time other than the ads we saw? Right. The ads for, the example I use as, Okay, I went to Jules Tavern in New Orleans, right? And I might be done talking about that in three sentences, but then you see the ad for Jules. Oh, that was Jules Tavern. Yeah. So that's that's if it, it fills in layers of what I
0: didn't write down. Yeah, an ad is worth a thousand words, as they say. You, yes. You stayed yes. at the Coral Sands Hotel, uh, in Los Angeles, and the it ad was for, wonderful. And the ad for Coral Sands is like sexy shirtless cartoon guys in a row. It was like. Oh, gay heaven, right?
1: It was like like a Howard Johnson's all fenced in.
0: Yeah, <laughs> which is how I like my Howard Johnson's. Um, <laughs> but, and there was a beautiful mural from one of the bars that you included. Can you talk a little bit about that mural?
1: That, yes, I can. Uh, that mural is actually anachronistic for, for this book because, but I wanted to pay tribute to it. it it's from the bar Mary's from Houston. Right. The mural was done by an artist who used to do the windows of Mary's different, like every week he would change the, the art on, on the windows. It was iconic. And he's such a good artist that I commissioned him to do the cover of the book. And it's from a photo taken in Los Angeles, actually at uh, the Hollyhock house. Yeah. Frank Lloyd Wright's house. Yeah. That photo was taken there. And that's the photo I sent him to do a drawing of and he did a great job it really looked like me it does And, and and it was the publisher's idea to crop it at just below my nose to add some mystery to it yeah and i think that was brilliant
0: yeah, it's very evocative. It really paints a picture of a time. It's a little clony. It's very sexy. Yeah. The denim. And the bottom button. The, the bottom, bottom button, button <laughs> is unbuttoned. I never knew that was a thing. I think if I had known that, my whole life might have been different. If I had known that, I, go. everything would have been different. Um You go to Houston and you find that one of the things you write about it, because you end up living there, is that in terms of its gay community, they got their shit together, which was kind of cool to read. And why did you say that? Did they just seem organized and that there was a real community there?
1: The the bowling league had 55 teams.
0: 55 teams in a gay bowling league in 1981 in Houston. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. That's like a town.
1: That's what uh, – in fact, that George Chauncey gave that example when he wrote his blurb for me that uh, – who knew? Right. Uh, and, and they had the, uh, the gay political caucus was already formed. They, st- they started in 1975, though they were already six years in business. And my criteria for where I wanted to live was an organized gay community in the South. I, I did the North. Don't like cold. Yeah. So it had to be warm. Right. Uh, Atlanta was an island, is it an island. Uh, LA, too big. San Francisco, too cold. Yeah. So Houston really was organized. So and, and I met, during the weeks I spent there, I met a lot of people. And so I kind of already felt like I knew the place.
0: Yeah. And you ended up going there and living there and being on a bowling team. And <laughs> remind me of yeah, your name. You had a funny team. name.
1: The Protein Supplements? The
0: Protein Supplements was your name. <laughs> yeah, that was my idea. I love it. It's shirts. so good. We had shirts. <laughs> it's so good. Also in in Houston, this line jumped out at me. You dated a gay Mormon who was, quote, almost too nice. And as a former gay Mormon, that tracks. That tracks. The almost too nice former gay Mormon um, depiction. That totally tracks. Um but what I thought was sweet about your book is you're kind of generous in your assessments overall. Like you didn't slag people off too much or you would say, well, they weren't for me or whatever. You weren't like, oh, that nightmare. Like you, <laughs> you had a generous spirit about you, which I found in all our previous interactions. But uh-huh. interesting. B- right. You know what I'm saying? Like you would say, oh, that you once in a while you would say, oh, that guy was a troll or whatever. But mostly it was like you weren't um, you weren't bitchy. You were kind of open-hearted, I felt like, in your assessments of things. And what's interesting to read is it's written like a diary. Like, there's no flowerly language because no one's ever going to read this. You're just trying to capture what you did, where you went, what you thought about it, and how you felt about it. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's fun to read in that way because you kind of feel like, oh, you're not supposed to be reading this. This is like reading somebody's diary, and it's, I don't know, I, I like the simplicity of the language. One of
1: my friends who, who has read it and just is nuts about it, he has a doctor's in English. And so he's a pretty good critic. Right. And he he just his praise was embarrassing, but I'm not easily embarrassed. So I was okay.
0: I love hearing about your adventure in LA. You got to go see Liza Minnelli in concert at the Greek. Amazing. What do you remember about that show?
1: I have binoculars and I'm glad I rented them. Yes. And then you could tell which one she was because she was waving her hands.
0: <laughs> so it's her and Joel Gray together. Yes. Doing yes. all the hits. Um, yes. So as a historian, you, you have this journal. You took a lot of photos. Do you save everything? Like what, how do you keep track of your stuff?
1: I'm very organized. Yeah. I'm very focused. That's how I do all this.
0: Do you have a storage unit? No. No, it's all My there. archives is in my house. I, I love it. So you're able to keep track of it all. It's very mm-hmm. good. Oh, I loved also some of the moments in time in terms of fashion. You talk a lot about a Lacoste shirts because there were all the boys wearing the Lacoste shirts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I got the feeling you weren't so into those as much as the clones no. in the T-shirts. and the not really. Yeah.
1: Not your... oh, I bought lots of T-shirts. I love the T-shirts with sayings on them.
0: Yeah. You talk about all the different sayings and you would buy T-shirts in the different places. Did they end up somewhere? Do you still have them? They were small shirts.
1: <laughs> I got you. And when you store T-shirts in the closet, yeah. they shrink. Yes. Over the years.
0: Yes. I have discovered that. But I did find a place once. I didn't want to get rid of these T-shirts that had sentimental value. So I found a place that made a quilt out of old T-shirts.
1: Oh, So you cut great. them
0: up and you send them in... Um, and they make a quilt, and it turns out pretty good. So you're able to hold on to the memories without having uh-huh. to pretend you can fit in them. But yeah, you had a lot of fun shirts with sayings in LA. You go into a store and you took notes yeah. of all the cute, clever sayings on the shirts. I wrote them down.
1: I made a list of what they were selling. Yeah, That's, how focused is that?
0: It's so funny. And then you got Clark a T-shirt um, <laughs> as a gift, and it had the number seventy-seven on it because he was your seventy-seventh trick. Yep. But I have to clarify, was that of the trip or in general from the time you came Total. out? Total. Total. Okay. Okay. Period. All right. Yeah.
1: That means that period.
0: Yeah. Now, you went to a lot of different gay bars and you would write about the atmosphere and the music and this one and that one. Were you much of a drinker then? No. I still not. Never was a drinker, really. Right. Because you spent a lot of time in gay bars, but you never wrote like, oh, I was so hungover this morning no. or anything like that. No. Would you drink a little? It was kind of a little or not Yeah, I would have a
1: beer, too. Yeah. But uh, I didn't didn't like well drinks because
0: they're too easy to spill. There you go.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um,
0: You played a lot of Pac-Man.
1: I did. I I talked about it too much. I'm sorry. No, it's (laughs) so
0: funny. That's part of the charm of it. You shouldn't apologize for anything because this was never meant for publication. We are privileged to be reading this account of this moment, right? Um, I want to
1: talk about the music. Yeah, so The music, like you started asking me about it. It was always important to me. So when I went from bar to bar, I commented on what I was listening to. Yeah, And it was always, of course, in the bars, it was disco. Right. So this was music from obviously no later than 81, but it could have been several years prior that I would just maybe not heard of yet. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't played in my part of the country. So I was... Like I was logging in what was played, and there's a list in the back of the book. And also, I put together a Spotify playlist.
0: I saw that. I added it to my Spotify.
1: You could play it for three hours and hear almost all the songs, the disco songs I mentioned. And then a second list for the country songs. Like country? Really? Yeah. When you're driving across Kansas, Iowa, what are you going to listen to? The radio, what are you going to hear? Country music.
0: And some of it I I quite liked. I love how music can take us back to moments in time like that.
1: Uh, My English uh, professor friend said when he got to one point in my book where I referenced a country song, it was a breakup song by uh, Jim Reeves called For the Good Times. Right. And we got to that point and I started quoting that song and my friend said he cried (laughs) because it was just because he was right there beside me in the car, you know, like, going through this.
0: Yeah, because halfway through your trip, you fall in love, and then you, you reunite, and you, you have phone calls that get more and more expensive, and it's, an, it's a whole odyssey. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but you stayed friends after the, the trip. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yes, for many years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you learn about America from the trip? Or were you more interested in gay culture specifically? Or did you have any observations about different parts of the country or the country as a whole?
1: They were probably pretty general observations. I was focused on gay. Yeah, remember, I was only out in three years. I right. wanted gay, gay, gay. I, I made references to what books I was reading. What books were available suddenly for for gay people to read, which had not been available until just several years before that, because there wasn't a market for book for gay books, and it became around. And so the people in the gay group in Norfolk that I was in, we were all devouring everything we could find because. We had not not had that opportunity before.
0: Yeah, and you talk about going to different gay movies and stuff. Like, oh, I saw La Caja Fall Part 2 while I was in this place. And it seemed like you were very hungry for any kind Mm -hmm. of culture in that way. I went to
1: two conferences. Yeah, I went to to lectures uh, and and things like that. Yeah, I I saw Vito Russell do his presentation on Celluloid Closet live. Oh, that's amazing. What was it like? Terrific, terrific. Well, I loved the book. I loved right. the film. I loved it all. And, but I got to see him at the Castro Theater in San Francisco.
0: And he had uh, footage and v- visuals yes. to go with everything yes. he was saying. To see yes. Vito Russo do that talk at the Castro Theater, that's a moment mm-hmm. in history.
1: And I met Armistead Maupin twice. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, some, some, some interaction there. So I met Leonard Matlovich. Yeah. And... Some more interaction there.
0: Some more interaction there. You had a little uh, uh, rendezvous. Overnight. Oh, no, overnight. overnight. A sleepover. That's what the kids call it. Um, Yeah, sleepover. But Armistead Maupin was reading Tales of the City columns that had either just come out, were about to come out. Like, it was, like, in real time, kind of, Tales of the City. Right,
1: right, right. He says he only wrote, like, a couple weeks ahead of time. Yeah. So what he was reading live that I heard was not out on a book yet. It wasn't even in, in the Globe yet. Did you have thing. any
0: scary times along the way? Any, any road trip like breakdowns or homophobia oh, yeah. or anything like yeah. that?
1: Uh, not homophobia. I had car trouble a couple times. I had a funny experience. This is not sad. It's funny. In Was it Memphis also? I was, it was a daytime. I was riding around uh, these four... Women, I guess they were women, they could have been drag queens, were in a convertible, and just camping it up. Yeah. And and they were trying to get my attention. And they said, uh, hey, you want some company? He said, no, 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 no. And I, and I said, I'm gay. And, and just, that's, that's fast. They said, we have a dodo. <laughs> just that fast.
0: I said, no thanks. No thanks. They had one. You know what? You got to travel prepared. So yeah, that was an offer that you did turn down. Um, I did turn that one. How are you still like the person that you read in those pages, and how are you different?
1: I'm much older. Yeah, and, and you get older, your life changes. Yeah, and, and your values change. Uh, I'm not running around the bars. I don't. I don't really go to the bar unless there's an event. Yeah, that I, I want to attend. Otherwise, I don't go out drinking. I don't. I don't drink. Yeah. So, and, and ha- not that I don't drink, I might. I might have a Zinfandel at, at, at a dinner, but
0: yeah. I don't worry about it. How are you the same? When you read those things, you're like, wow, I, feel, I still feel like that person. I'm
1: still a smartass.
0: <laughs> yeah. But you're a nice smartass. You oh. are. I think you are. You end the book and you write about um, AIDS and how it came later and all of the people that you've mm-hmm. lost. Um, and it was something that you think about as you're reading it throughout. But you talk about you have this way of describing it that I'd never heard before, and I thought it was such a rich image, and it really moved me. Will you talk about the feeling like you were holding a camera? Can you talk a little bit about that? I thought I'd never heard it put that way before, and I thought it was really actually resonant.
1: That you know, the epilogue I wrote later,
0: yeah, not, not during the trip, right? And the
1: introduction I wrote later. So those are bookending. The journal part. Right. But I needed to close it up with, with just like, okay, I'm back to Norfolk. Done. I can't do that. I need to tell people what happened and I need to give a little retrospective of what was immediately ahead of this. And I wanted to honor the friends I lost, like in the next 10 years. Yeah. All through the eighties. And so the epilogue was important for me to get right. An analogy of the camera was something. That I had actually written before, because a friend of mine, an out music friend, right, asked me to write about my perspective on it, and I came up with a camera idea that how I was um, focusing on the people that I had lost, and then you you back up with the camera, you 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 change the lens setting, and you're looking at a, a wider view, and oh, here's the artists, the musicians, the writers that we've lost and then you back up again and here's the losses all over the world. Yeah. So, so that's the view looking, looking, looking
0: again. This idea that you're trying to capture a group in a photo and you keep having to move backward and backward and backward and backward and it's never enough to capture everything. I think that was a really powerful, um, metaphor. Do you think that your work as a historian is connected to, to the loss? Is there a part of you that wants to preserve things? Are they related, or is it just you would have been doing this no matter what?
1: I, would have, I think I would have evolved into it anyhow. Yeah. Why is it important to you? There is something in me that I need to give back to the community. And, and that's why I do all this work. You know, just, all of this is volunteer work. I look at it as giving back. And the obituary project, I don't know if you've looked at that site,
0: yeah, uh, I, I checked it out.
1: There's 8,000 obituaries there. They're all Texas. They're all LGBT from any cause. But, but a heavy percent is AIDS. And I do not only have the obituary. I have clippings I might find about different people. So it's, it's building their lives, different, especially the gay leaders. Okay, here's, here's what they did four years before they died. Here's what they did when they won this honor or, or this award. So here's these headlines and it's on the same page as the obituary. So it's like, it's more than an obituary. It's a tribute.
0: Have you heard from people that your work has meant a big difference to? I mean, I'm speaking as somebody that, that had that experience, but do you get emails? Like what are the, what are the random ways that you learn that your stuff is connecting?
1: I just got yesterday in the mail, a letter in the mail. Who does that? I know. I love this was a greeting. You can see it. It's a greeting card that says congratulations from a person I do not know. Right. Uh, And uh, uh, hello, it's so and so. I just finished reading your terrific book. What a great read and most of all remembrance of times past. Kudos. Congratulations. I hope the book is a massive bestseller for you. Thanks for I love this line. Thanks for letting us ride shotgun with you on the journey.
0: Isn't that great? It's so beautiful. Have you heard from many of the people in the book, or have you reached out to them as you were working on it?
1: Uh, I did some for permissions.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. And it's it's only been out five weeks. Yeah. So it's fresh. So and it's exposure is tricky because first time author, you know, you know this story. Yeah. Uh, To to get get the word out, I'm 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 beating Facebook and Instagram to death. Yeah. Uh, It's just trying to get the word out and I'm just starting to do podcasts and interviews. You're the, the first podcast. So
0: thank you. I'm honored with my podcast. I like to shine a light on gay artists that may not always get much mainstream exposure. And you know so much about that because that's what I did with my radio show. You made a life out of it. And so many, I think it means so much to just have somebody say, I listened to it. It meant something to me like those little things. Sometimes that's all you get. Like, you're not going to make a lot of money. Like, you know, sometimes all you get are those little moments of like, oh, this connected with somebody. And so... We had a
1: we had a female impersonator in Norfolk that called herself Diana Ross. Yeah. And she changed it to R-H-O-S-S. Okay. I guess to make it clear it wasn't Diana Ross. Yeah. And she, she dressed really beautifully. And she was on the cover of the the gay newspaper in Norfolk. And one of my posts today, people were commenting, and she chimed in. I knew she was on my friend list, but I had never seen her comment on anything. And she said, "Well, I was on the cover of one of the issues of that newspaper, and I commented right back. Yes, you're mentioned on page forty-three with a link to the cover. Now you have to buy the book."
0: (laughs) Exactly. You know what? Go for the ask. You have to go the ask. You can't just read the cover. Yes. Uh, And what was her reaction? Did she react? didn't react. Yeah. All right. But all right. It just it just happened. I know she has got to move those units. Are you doing any events, any signings, anything locally? Yes. There's a signing.
1: Uh, a, I guess private is the word because it's it's in a it's in a bar in Houston called the Eagle. Right on. There upstairs is called the Phoenix Room, which is a history room. I helped curate the room, so it's it's wonderful. That big bar poster of Mary's bar is in that room.
0: Oh, amazing.
1: So I'm going to be standing in front of that mural doing a reading.
0: I love that mural so much because it reminds me of, sometimes in LA there will be a mural of like all of these movie stars as though they're together in a bar or something. Mm-hmm. Like they're sitting at a counter and it's Marilyn and James Dean. And it's like this what ifness. And this mural, can you describe it a little bit? Because there's a picture of it in your book and I think... Um, it really like, I, I sat there and looked at it for like five minutes. I just loved it so much.
1: The mural is really of Mary's bar from a long time ago. The bar closed in 2009 and it shows a lot of the usual suspects that you might see sitting around the bar. And there was a, a cat that was always in the bar that's sitting on a stool. And, and there was a, uh, you know, different people you can pull, you can recognize some of them. Right. Not all of them are to be individuals but some of them are and the signs from the bar that are very typical so they kind of yes this was what the bar looked like and the artist Scott Swobland did a terrific job and the owner of the eagle got him to reproduce that for his bar and so i said you know this is this is not of 1981 but i want in my book kind of a as a nod to the cover artist, to say, yes, yeah, here's here's more of his work.
0: Yeah, uh, you went to a lot of gay bars on your journey, and have since. What would you be your perfect gay bar if you were going to design one?
1: Uh, the Eagle in Houston is probably a perfect bar. Yeah, and that's where I'm having my reading, and the owner is a good friend of mine. We we go to lunch once in a while. He's not even charging me for the space. He said, "Oh, it's JD. It's okay."
0: Yeah. Well, you're you're like hometown. Royalty, like you were in the parade not long ago. That must have been cool.
1: Um I was grand marshal. It's it's been a while, 2014, but that was a real honor.
0: What was it like to ride in the parade and look out at people? Did you recognize was, faces in the crowd? Once in a while.
1: It, yeah. You know, it's a pretty big crowd and it was down one of the main Gay Drags and yeah. as you pass as the car turns this last corner where you know you're coming towards the finish, right? You get a, a wave over you, yeah. Like, 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 not goosebumps, but you know that that feeling in your body that you sense
0: it. You must have felt proud and connected, and oh yeah, like yeah. all of this work that you've done, like that that it that it's sort of coming together into this moment. Right.
1: Yeah. I was stunned that I was even chosen because this was an election.
0: Oh, so people vote? It's because you yes. you do this amazing work and you've preserved. Uh, so much about our history. How, how can people find your websites? W- uh, is there one central place to go? What's the best yeah, way for there, people there's an to check umbrella them out? Site, yeah. Uh,
1: jake Doyle Archives.org.
0: Yeah. Nice. And that, and that gets you to all of them. And how many do you have at this point? I have three huge websites. Three huge websites. I love it.
1: 20,000 pages of content. Wow.
0: I'm looking over my notes here and I wrote down from early in the book you were in the National Guard for a while.
1: Yeah, I kind of blocked that out. You kind of blocked uh, it, it out. I, I really did
0: Here's one, and one question about it. Was there anything about that time that you saved? Like, do you make your bed that way still? Or is there anything that stuck from that experience? Hatred of the military. Okay. <laughs> All right. You know what? I, it makes sense. It tracks. It totally tracks. Uh, um, th- this was, remember, they were still drafting people for Vietnam.
1: Yeah. In 1970. So it was either like, go in the guard or go farther east. Right. I'm allergic to rice patties, so it, it wouldn't have worked.
0: It wouldn't have worked. So you made the choice that you had to make. Um I also read there was a the guy that you hooked up with in San Francisco that was auditioning for Breach Blanket Babylon, who my former roommate was in that show. So I saw it uh, multiple times. But you wrote about him, you're like, I don't think he's tough enough for show business, which made me laugh out loud because <laughs> you gotta be tough for show business. You gotta. Even in even in a comedy review called Like Breach right, Blanket, right. yeah. Well, you always
1: maybe you maybe you changed. You said you were a media
0: whore. I guess so. I was always <laughs> hustling. I always I I never thought that I would just get somebody to discover me or whatever. When I created like books or things, I really felt like I had to hustle. Like I I never waited around for something. Um, but I it wasn't like that. I loved the attention, but I felt like if I wanted anything to happen with my work, I had to take control well, of it. Yeah.
1: I'm learning how to promote a book.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a delight. It's a daily delight. Um,
1: it, it's a lot of time. Yeah. A lot of work.
0: How did the experience of that road trip change you? Because I think traveling generally can open us up in a way and, and change us. Um,
1: maybe more self-assured more. Yes, I can do this yeah. because I was on this trip alone Yeah, in my, in my 77 Skylark. With no air conditioning, because it was a Yankee car.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, so those r- windows I, were down in the south, and you were just roasting.
1: So I was just, I was just figuring it out. So my networking that I gained from the newspaper helped me get across country.
0: You would reach out to other gay newspapers in other cities uh-huh. where you had connections, and that would be right. kind of your your first stop, maybe, to figuring out the city. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. And just you in that car. With your Levi's, just uh, that unbutton bottom button, sending that message. Um, tell people how they can find the book.
1: The book is easier at Amazon. Yeah. But any, any bookstore can order it for you. I know some people don't care for Amazon. That is absolutely fine. Uh, I like Amazon because it has all the blurbs yeah. printed from the book, and people can write in reviews. And I've gotten several very nice reviews from, quote, ordinary people. Ordinary people are
0: awesome. The book is entitled 1981, My Gay American Road Trip, A Slice of Our Pre-AIDS Culture by J.D. Doyle. J.D., on behalf of of one queer artist, I want to thank you for everything you've done. You made me feel really special back then, and uh, it it resonates to this day. Um, Here's my final question. Why do you do the work that you do? I have to. I have to.
1: It's it's just a drive. Yeah. And I, I've I've written to some people that I feel like I'm on a treadmill. There's so much I want to do that I may not finish. That, uh, but I want to do more. I want to do what I can.
0: What makes you feel proud when you look at it all?
1: I get some nice feedback. Yeah. For people, they say, oh, you know, I get emails from all over the world. Like, uh, oh, they found my site and. Uh, This one woman was working on a thesis on women's music, and she said my website just guided the way for her. Yeah, She she, she knew who to write about, who to think about, who to try and contact, how to organize it. She got it all from my website.
0: I always say this is my last question, and it's never my last question. I always think of something else. (laughs) When you've done so much to chronicle our history, especially around the arts, what do you think of this moment? In the, in the culture now, in, the, in our country? Do you, does it make you think, gosh, our stuff is, is even more important than I always believed? Does it give you an, a sense of urgency around the work that you do when you look at what's going on in the country?
1: Uh, I don't know if I need a sense of urgency because right. I'm always working hard. I work on this every day. Yeah. But, but we are in a dark time. Mm. I think we will come out of it. Yeah. But it's going to take a few years. It's going to take some major changes in thinking in the country and know how hard that is.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's kind of a dark note to end the interview on. So I'm going to ask you one silly light question related to your book. You love t-shirts with things that, that sent it on them. It's like fun, sassy things. What t-shirt got the most comments, was the most provocative, was the most, uh, you know, memorable?
1: Can I swear? Sure.
0: Yes, please. Uh, yes.
1: There's a picture of this shirt in the book. Okay. And this is the, the, the t-shirt I'm wearing on the cover of the book, only there's no writing on that shirt because it was a drawing. Okay, but that shirt, if you look at a close up of it, and there's a close up in the book, says "fuck them" if they can't take a joke.
0: <laughs> and that's your and that's your and that's something you believe, you hold it to be true. All right. Excellent. JD, thank you so much for the conversation. I loved your book. I love talking to you. I love all the work that you do. It really means a lot to me and all kinds of, um, of people all over the world. You've always been a delight, Dennis, and I, I love how well researched you are. You're amazing. Oh, wait, I do have one more question. What was your final <laughs> number? What was your final number of tricks at the end of your trip? 43. 43 on the trip. That's solid. <laughs> what city had the hottest guys? Atlanta did pretty well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, LA did pretty well
0: right on thank you LA representing San Francisco did well yeah yeah
1: but there were surprises everywhere yeah the the two cities that I had had two tricks in the same day were New Orleans that's not a shocker
0: yeah you want to guess the second one Salt Lake City Salt Lake City Salt Lake City two a day in Salt Lake City that should be on a t-shirt thank you (laughs) (laughs) all right bye JD bye thanks so much Thanks again to J.D. Doyle. Check out his book, 1981, wherever you get your books. And his archives are also amazing. And you can find them online at jddoylearchives.org. All right, so this happened. I got an email or a, a message. ...online about one of my previous um, episodes, which is always cool. I did an interview a few weeks back about Studio One Forever, the documentary about the gay disco, Studio One in Los Angeles. And we talked in the interview about Scott Forbes, who was the owner of Studio One, and that he could be a bit difficult, I guess, as a personality. Um, And I got an email from somebody who knew Scott back in the day. Uh, The listener's name is Shane, and he wrote that uh, he enjoyed the interview and it was fun to hear about that time... And about Scott, he said he was not always pleasant and, in fact, quite a difficult man when it came to what he envisioned and directed, but he was a good friend and did a lot to help people all over the place, unbeknownst to many in that era, Um, which I thought was nice to hear. So thank you, Shane, for reaching out and sharing your memories of Scott. Um, If you guys ever have anything you want to say about any of the interviews or have ideas for things I should talk about on the podcast— I love hearing from people. You can email me at Dennis at DennisHensley.com, or there's also a Dennis anyone Facebook page on Facebook. Um, Okay. So this happened. So my favorite thing in the summer in the last couple of years has been this outdoor screening series at the Westfield fashion square mall in Sherman Oaks here in LA. They do a really good job. It's affordable. It's like 10 bucks. Last year it was five, like really um, budget, good budget, uh, offering And it's just a nice setup with a nice screen and chairs and popcorn and free... Anyway, so last week, a group of folks saw A League of Their Own, which I had not seen since it came out. And boy, does it hold up. It's enchanting. Um, And I was really moved by it. But just last night, I saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is the third one with Sean Connery. It's terrific. Like, the set pieces are amazing. Their relationship is great. It's funny. And the, I didn't recognize The Icy Blonde And I usually I used to get Premier Magazine Around the time This was made So I thought I was really up on it all And I always knew The new starlet You know like But I didn't know Who she, who the, the blonde was in this And it turns out It's an actress Named Allison Duty Who was in RRR My favorite movie Last year That I was obsessed with um, She's the Icy Blonde In that as well So um, That was fun And then next week I have tickets For Mamma Mia Which You know it's, there's You can't go wrong with Dancing Queen As long as Pierce Brosnan isn't singing it So anyway, I love I love that There might be a few tickets left when you hear this If you're in LA, go to myvalleypass.com And check it out I can't get enough of that place um, So anyway, that's it for this week Thank you so much for listening um, I want to give a shout out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes My theme music is by Mark Daniels For Placement Music We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone Bye! <laughs>